Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This week's show um, is about especially broad, messy coalitions. It's about whole groups of people, uh, men and women, uh, people of color and uh, white folks. I talked to Helen Rosner about a piece that she wrote called 20 Things Men Can Do Right the Fuck Now to Support Women Beyond Just Literally Ceasing to Harass Us. And we talk about that in response to um, one of the more provocative listener questions we've ever gotten. It's a question about someone who is on the other side of the Me Too story, as he puts it. And because we talk about that, that second part of the show is one that you may not want to listen to if you yourself are a survivor of sexual assault. And I will remind you, as I always remind you, that if this stuff trips you up in any way possible, you can contact RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, online or via phone and also the crisis text hotline uh, if you need help of any kind. But first, I'm going to talk to Van Newkirk, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and who covers politics, health, policy, voting rights, and the environment. He wrote a piece that's um, a little bit kind of like 101 with friends like these. If you're a fan of the show, you should read this piece. It's called The Language of White Supremacy. And it's kind of a primer on why that specific phrase and the ideas behind it are important right now. So we're going to talk about that first. Van Newkirk, coming right up. Van Newkirk, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's it's good to have you. I wanted to talk to you when your piece about white supremacy came out last week. Uh, I gather you were involved in a, a rigorous reporting adventure. Uh, so couldn't be on the show last week. So before we get started, I, I want to point out that the term white supremacy actually has a very specific history that you talk about in your essay. It has a definition. And you go to David Gilborn, a uh, critical race theory uh, scholar for it, and I'll read it. So we all are working from the same text. By white supremacy, I do not mean to allude only to the self-conscious racism of white supremacist hate groups. I refer instead to a political, economic, and cultural system in which whites overwhelmingly control power and material resources. Conscious and unconscious ideas of white superiority and entitlement are widespread, and relations of white dominance and non-white subordination are daily reenacted across a broad array of institutions and social settings. You know what's weird is that white supremacy is still in the news. Yeah, I think it's a thing that's going to be relevant uh, for quite some time. Yeah, I think that we we don't have a news cycle right now where it's not relevant. Uh, yeah, we unfortunately that's probably been true for the past what four hundred years uh, before there were news cycles, and 
Let's talk about that, because that statement in of itself is actually something that some people would find problematic, and that's what you sort of wanted to engage in. Do you want to kind of give the genesis of your piece, and then we'll talk about it some more? Okay, so this piece, you know, it was called "Who Just Who Gets to Be Called a White Supremacist or the, the, the Usefulness of the Term White Supremacy. And basically what I was doing was responding to a number of pieces that have come out, um, especially in the wake of the election of President Trump and in the wake of some uh, sort of critical race theory-inspired pieces that have endeavored to basically find the role of white supremacy in, in a lot of different sort of inequalities that still exist today. So uh, people have been bristling, lots of folks have been bristling um, on pretty much all sides of the political spectrum about a definition of white supremacy that catches people who aren't, say, David Duke, who aren't Klansmen, who aren't Nazis. Uh, but my general argument is that in the history of white supremacy, especially post-Jim Crow, what happened was the act- the white supremacists who were doing the work of white supremacy, the people who were uh, doing gerrymandering, the people who were doing, who were suppressing voting rights, the people who were writing restrictive housing covenants and redlining, they moved towards, on purpose, a race-neutral policy orientation that basically perpetuated Jim Crow, but didn't say it. And so they basically created the conditions under which people couldn't call them outright white supremacists uh, and under which I could also sue them for calling them that too, and basically shifted the window of white supremacy to people who join hate groups, to people they could say, oh, those guys are crazy. So the entire thing here is basically playing into their hands based on that history. If when you say only people who are Nazis are white supremacists, basically. Right. They're doing to white supremacy what I think has long been done to the word racist. Uh, which people know that it is bad to be called a racist, right? Um, right. And, and so people police that term uh, in a way that's not useful to talking about structural inequality and structural racism. Like, it's funny because on this show and in my own writing for the past couple of years, I've actually preferred the term white supremacy to racist or racism because I think it, is, it, it illustrates the problem better. And in a way, I've always felt like it kind of does what a lot of us social justice warriors claim we want to do, which is kind of use people first language and describe systems rather than labeling people, you know, like we're really into talking about people of color and people with disabilities. And I think it's just as useful to talk about people who are supporting white supremacy rather than people who are individually racist. Yeah, I, I, I actually don't really see a utility in the in the you know white supremacist or racist uh, when applied to people necessarily all the time um i, I yeah. think referring to the concept referring to people who are upholding it who support it who benefit from it is a bit more productive uh like you said and that is part of a linguistic movement that has been affected also by critical race theory by people who were saying okay the basically how language has been constricted. The only people we can say are sort of wrong here are people who choose to join the Klan, which doesn't make any sense. Right. And it turns into a, a shaming uh, 
word more than a really useful word again to describe the system. I liked a part in the essay where you said, um, you know, racism, charges of racism in and of themselves became epithets and the mantle of white supremacy was relegated only to the ranks of those white folks foolish or ideological enough to not abide by the taboo. And I think what you've captured there is this idea that when we call people racist or white supremacist or people feel like the white term white supremacy is being used in this too general way, what happens is you're not just sort of charging them with this social faux pas, but you're kind of shaming them for getting caught, right? Like right. you're implying that what you really did bad here was you got caught, was you got caught being a racist, you got caught being a white supremacist. Right. You said the thing. Yeah. And the whole entirety of it's actually remarkable how much of our politics is just centered around. It's a construct built around just not saying the thing. Um, yeah. But what's remarkable is we I, we should know that the sophistication, the, 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 the people are sophisticated enough to know that this is a thing. The courts know this is a thing. So the courts for decades have been saying, okay, wait a minute, just because you aren't saying you are racist, just because you don't come out and say you made this law because you believe black people are inferior, the courts are like, okay, we can see through the 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 guys here. And if courts can do that, if courts that have had members who are uh, pretty otherwise <laughs> problematic in their uh, in their views of the world can say, okay, look, look, man, we know what's going on here. Then we as a society should be able to say, okay, look, we know what's going on here. But for whatever reason, we in this thing and not in anything else really are just bound to taking people at their word, which is just ridiculous. And making it about, you know, when people, I think, take this language personally and, and want to make it about individual ists, you know, ists, white supremacists or racists, um, they make it about trying to divine what is in someone's heart, which isn't the point at all. Right. Right. Uh, I I don't I hate arguments about whether or not Trump is a racist or Steve Bannon is a racist. Like those are so beside the point. We, what we're talking about here is both the structural program that they support and also something just so much more insidious than racism, than the hatred of a of a of a group of people. And it's it's when you talk about white supremacy, I think what mostly white people, you know, cringe at is something you refer to in the essay as well, which is that it necessarily involves some reflection if you're a white person to talk about white supremacy. Right. And it involves reflection that goes beyond, like you said, what's in your heart. Uh, it, it goes into what you do. What are the, it, it involves a, a bit of of seeing yourself from the outside and seeing what the impact of your actions and your views and and maybe even your naivety is on other people. Now, as for politicians, I do not understand the whole this is in his heart or it's not in his heart or he's, you know, not a David Duke on the inside because it doesn't matter. Nobody elects politicians because of what they dream about at night and, you know, what they what's their core, I guess, maybe convictions matter, but what you, you elect politicians to make policy, to enact policy, to push things, to promote values. And what they should be judged on is those policies, what they promote and what they build. And so 
this whole exercise, you know, Speaker Ryan does it a lot where he's like, you know, I know in his heart, he's a good guy. He's not racist. That doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and people really with this thing above everything else, you know, if Trump is going out and causing an environmental catastrophes, you can say Trump is anti-environment. That's a pretty non-controversial claim. <laughs> Right. We take we take politicians. We don't trust politicians word on all kinds of other political issues. We look at their record. But on on for some reason around race and I would actually argue about all kinds of identity questions. um, We we do talk about it as though it was something in their hearts and not in policy. Yeah, it's fair because you could have the same politician who comes out and says he's a feminist Mm -hmm. and people are going to be like, okay, I trust him on that. Um, And. Yeah, like you said, a lot of identity issues where otherwise you would be very suspicious where somebody would say, I'm not a jerk. And you say, OK, you don't get to de- you don't get to decide that. But for whatever reason, we just give so much deference on these few things. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, in terms of a couple of other, you know, hot button issues in the news, um, both around the Harvey Weinstein allegations and also even around the Las Vegas shooting, because what I feel like these things have in common is a rush by, you know, those with power to single out bad perpetrators and to make them the problem, right? Like it's the individual gunman, it's Harvey Weinstein, it's white supremacists. And if we say those people are the problem, then we don't have to look at ourselves. Yeah, and that's a very American thing. We don't like to think in systems. We don't like to, we don't like to think in societal levels unless it's about how great we are and, you know, how awesome and waving flags and fighter jets and all that stuff. But when it comes to really sort of criticism of, of finding ways to make things better, even constructive criticism, people just often tend to carve themselves out of, of the conversation and, tend to speak in ways to do that. So, yeah, we are talking about mass shootings. Nobody wants to talk about the types of glorification and ritualization of violence they engage in. Nobody wants to talk about, when you're talking about violence against women and sexual harassment and sexual violence, people don't talk about how they engage in rape culture. That's why people are, so many people get up in arms when you talk about rape culture. Oh, it's not a culture. You know, that's that one bad guy over there. But we know And it's pretty much established in sociology and pretty much every academic field that the way people are brought up, you know, that that's influenced by society. It's influenced by media. It's influenced by where we go to school, the messages we absorb and learn. And so everybody wants to exempt themselves, because if you start thinking a little bit more broadly, that's when you start getting into both culpability and responsibility. And responsibility is a hard thing. And that's why this language is so important and why we should be using it ultimately, I I feel like, is because of the culpability and responsibility uh, excavation that we have to do as a culture if we're going to get over it. Uh, Not get over it, I shouldn't say, but if we're going to make any kind of progress, getting over is my own kind of whiteness talking. (laughs) If we're going to do any kind of progress and have reconciliation over the violence that's been done to people of color um, underneath white supremacy, we have to talk about blame. Like we have to talk about responsibility as white people living currently now, not just my ancestors might've done some bad things. Right. Well, 
I think one of the things there is when you get start talking about responsibility, people have this image in their head of like Django Unchained, right? <laughs> like, like people that black people want white people to be like to whip themselves in order to to get over slavery, but I don't. People aren't asking for that. Um, when you look at the, the word reconciliation, which you said, one of the key models for reparations for figuring out how to redistribute the gains, ill-gotten gains from oppression was Nelson Mandela in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Councils. So what they did was basically they weren't asking people, white folks in South Africa, to to, to self-flagellate themselves, to, you know, lay themselves in front of the council and beg for forgiveness. They were saying, look, okay, look, you did this. We're not going to send you to jail. We're just going to, we're going to implement these reforms that take a certain amount of what you have or whatever, and we're going to redistribute it. And that was extreme because the situation was extreme. But even then, it was not asking people to engage in this ridiculous show of like sorrow and uh, forgiveness and putting, making themselves subordinate to black folks. Like that, that wasn't the thing. And that's not how we should talk about it here either. We should be talking about reconciliation, which is two parties coming now to the table and having some sort of arbitration over a wrong. And that is a legalistic uh, term and framework that's as old as humanity. And it's not something that involves necessarily white people. White. It doesn't even involve white guilt, to be honest. Yeah. Just involves recognizing a wrong and understanding that it's our collective responsibility as Americans, as humans, to make life better for our children and for others. And that's that's pretty basic. There are a ton of online mattress retailers popping up these days, all with a one size fits all solution to a better sleep. But guess what? One size does not fit all. Helix Sleep offers something that doesn't exist anywhere else, a mattress personalized to your unique preferences and sleeping style that won't set you back thousands of dollars. So go to helixsleep.com slash Anna and take their simple two to three minute sleep quiz. They will build you a custom mattress that will be the best thing you've ever slept on. And for couples, they even personalize each side of the mattress. Everyone from GQ to Cosmopolitan to the New York Times are talking about Helix. And once you try it out, you'll know why. Your custom mattress arrives direct to your door in a week and shipping is completely free. Try it for 100 nights and if you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you in full. Go to helixsleep.com slash Anna right now and you will get $50 towards your custom mattress. That's helixsleep.com slash Anna, A-N-A for $50 off your order, helixsleep.com slash A-N-A. People who listen to the show on a regular basis are familiar with the fact that I've I've kind of gotten into this idea of comparing white supremacy to a kind of addiction uh, and using some of the tropes that I know from recovery to, to think about how to move through it. And there is a part of the recovery process when you go back and do what they called as an inventory, a self-inventory. And the instructions for that have a lot to do with don't make it about beating yourself up. Don't make it about fragilization. Don't make it about feeling guilty because that's a performative thing. That's like, that's just something that you're doing for show for other people, for yourself. And it can distract you from the actual calculation of what happened and the 
you know, literal taking into account of what kind of, you know, quantitative damage you may have done in your life, how much money you may owe people, you know, what kind of harms you did. You're not supposed to make it a show of feeling sorry. It's supposed to be about a clear-eyed look at the past. And I, I feel like that's sort of also what you're saying here is like, it, it shouldn't be about white guilt. It should be just about, okay, let's look at this. Let's just find, find what happened, present the case, you know, and, and talk to another party about, is this look like, does this, does this also what you see? Right. And one of the things I think gets in the way is we have this really sort of Puritan way of thinking about things still. Uh, that is just seeped into everything American and frankly, everything white. That's, this is, you know, the sort of very conservative religious thinking about right and wrong and what you do when you wrong someone that comes, you know, that's where we get the flagellation term from Mm -hmm. Um, is people think that when someone accuses you of being wrong or you of carrying the taint of evil that you are supposed to basically uh, turn your to punish yourself. That you're supposed to uh, do this performance so you can show that you are, you know, pure hearted again. But it, nobody cares about that stuff now. People just want <laughs> results. People want to make sure their kids can breathe clean air, can live in good housing, and have opportunities. And and that's those are things that I think if you think you are not a white supremacist, you should be on board with. Right. And I think this does, I, you know, we're talking about systems and talking about the need to avoid personalizing a lot of this. But I do think that this is applicable to individual white people, too. Right. Um, to be clear eyed in the examination of their place in this system rather than feeling bad about it. Right. And so. It gets a lot of flack now. It's almost, you know, it's a caricature now, the the idea of checking your privilege. But that came from a, a group of people who wanted their, the, the white people they inter- interacted with, the people who were sort of on their side and saying, I want to help. They came, okay, look, check your privilege. Think about your privilege. Think about the things that not that have been given to you or the things you've taken from black people, but the things that have just been made possible to you or that the doors that haven't been closed to you because you were white and or because you were not black. And Mm -hmm. so when you think about those things, when you think about, okay, I got stopped by the police and I wasn't afraid. Uh, I was able to get a home loan (laughs) in Baltimore. You think about the, 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 the cumulative effects of those things over generations, then you start being able to see the system. And that's the system does a whole lot of work to obscure itself from people who benefit from it. And that's the whole point of that exercise right there. Right. And I would say that the point is not, again, to feel bad. I, we don't care. I'm actually on the side of the people who I guess would say they're on the right as far as the fuck your feelings crowd. I'm very fuck your feelings about this. I don't care about people feeling bad about things, Um, but just look at where you are uh, and talk about it. I mean, something we talked about last week, I I talked with my colleague Jamil Smith about is just about the discomfort that white people have in seeing race in their relationships, in talking with people of color about the fact that I am white, you are black. This has this makes this has an impact on the way that we talk about things or the way that we have uh, the way that we view a story 
in journalism, I think this is an incredibly important conversation for white journalists to be having. I think there were definitely parts of the coverage of 2016 election that could have been better if newsrooms had been talking about race more. Oh, we blew it in 2016. I think you're being a little bit too modest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was I think I'm the, being conservative, let's say. But OK, yeah, we blew it. I'll, I'll go with blew it. <laughs> yeah, the media, it's not a, just about talking about race. It's, again, these exercises of proving that you have even the slightest modicum of empathy towards other people. And it's remarkable how many newsrooms, how many reporters just continue to pump out stories, to pump out columns that showed absolutely no empathy. And a lot of those manifested in sort of the uh, stereotype middle American, you know, they, they use the phrase middle class to talk almost exclusively about white people. And even in the, 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 in our reflection of what happened in 2016, people are saying, okay, we ignored these people, but they do not possess the empathy to think about other people that we ignore. The people who, uh, if they had just turned out, the, the, the election would have gone yeah. a totally different way. You're talking about these people who are, uh, who are angry in, in the Ozarks and they are angry. They have reason to be angry and they are underlooked. But the whole exercise of empathy just isn't there for people to think about, hey, maybe there are other people we've been overlooking. And newsrooms as a whole have done a terrible job at talking about people often in their own backyards. And and we, we missed, I don't think the story that was missed was necessarily people, you know, coastally latte drinking journalists missing the rage of the lower middle white class. Yes, that did happen, but what really went unsaid, unheralded, was the fact that low-income people of color did not go to the polls in 2016. And nobody knows why, because nobody reported on it. This is where people of color in a newsroom could make a difference, because if you're a person of color, that those are the people that you're more top of mind, let's say, Right. Like their existence is not as invisible as it is to white people. Yeah. And you, I would say I'm using empathy sort of in an institutional framework because mm-hmm. one way I think you build that is just so simple, especially as a journalist. You just go out and talk to people of color. Mm-hmm. It's, from, it's amazing what you can do if you just go out and talk to people. If you do your job, which is reporting, mm-hmm. which is getting quotes from people about what they think about the world. And ask a lot of journalists when who was the last person of color they interviewed? And you're going to get a lot of blanks sometimes. Who was the last person of color if you're not an in-the-field reporter, if you're doing columns? Who was the last person of color you cited in your column? Uh, who you linked to in your column? And, and yeah, and things fall apart so quickly then. And, and someone besides Ta-Nehisi Coates. Like, that would actually, <laughs> I love him, but, <laughs> like, let's expand the palette a little bit. Um, when we talk about thinkers uh, 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 and intellectuals and people who ha- who can speak to these things. Um, and I also think I, I want to add to that, not just people of color, but also people with disabilities um, and women uh, and people with just different historical experiences in general. Like someone who's not like a white person, basically, and a white man. Yeah. Um, journalists are 
are so blind about this. And I say this as someone who had to, has to be aware of it myself. You know, um, I've had to really make an effort to even booking this show for goddamn, you know, like I want to know when I look at my show lineup that I'm not just like talking to people that have a voice every place else in the world which is essentially what journalists tend to do. Like just circle back to that same group of people. Yeah. I mean, same thing with me. There, there's, there's a tendency, you know, you usually, like, I'm a black man and there could be a tendency for me to only cite cis black men who are able-bodied, who are moving in similar circles, who are from the same place as me. Um, and that's also itself skewed. And so you really have to, diversity is a buzzword, but it's also an effort you make. And it's a very simple effort just to talk to different people and to be cognizant of who you are speaking to and how their opinions and viewpoints shape what you do. And it, you know, it's not a difficult thing to do again. It's just, it's it's actually infuriating how people treat it like it's just so hard you know oh god <laughs> oh god i can't believe you want me to be diverse you want me to talk to different people like i don't know different people man what are you what are you asking and then, then you you see how many journalists have put together rolodexes have put together phone contact lists have they only read white men mm-hmm. and yeah it shouldn't be hard, but people build these bubbles over the course of years to where they, I guess it is. I also want to note something you, you bring up in your essay that I think is we've touched on already, but important, which is that a lot of these ideas and concepts about white privilege, about white supremacy, about diversity um, have come to be associated with this feelings issue. Right. Like the idea that the, the snowflake social justice warrior like if you're concerned about these things, it's because you want to feel good about yourself because you want to feel like you're doing something or you feel guilty or whatever. But again, none of these things are really about that. They're about actually critical thinking, uh, specificity and sort of correct interpret. Not I shouldn't say correct interpretation, but like more accurate way of viewing the world. Like, I don't think anyone should could argue that having a more diverse list of people to talk to would make your reporting worse, right? Like it's right. going to make your reporting better. And this is, yeah, like you said, it's praxis. It's not, it's not feelings. It's not emotions. It's going out there and making sure you do the work correctly. And that's all you really have to do is come up with a set of processes and practices that you do, that, that you implement and that you think about. And maybe you have to put them on a board somewhere to think about to make sure you do them. <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 not difficult and it's not about you. And a lot of people, I think, do this and it's completely annoying and I hate it. And lots of liberal <laughs> journalists go out there and, you know, they're, they're crying on Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm, I just feel so bad for people of color and under Trump. And, you know, they, they do these long threads and it's very performative. And it's like, no, nah, man, you know, just just go do the work. Just, just go out there and talk to folks and ask them how they think you, I think, especially as journalists, um, we should have to earn the space that we take up. And that's something I hope I'm doing. But as also as a consumer, I think it's not a thing that other that lots of other people are thinking about. We should have to earn that. We should have to earn that with incorporating different perspectives into our work and with really challenging not only our readers, but, our, but ourselves to 
thinking about the world outside of our own eyes. Thank you for making time for this. I really um, I always enjoy talking to you. I'm sure yeah. we'll have you back at some point. Well, so. thank you so much for having me. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, less time consuming, so that even when you're very busy, as we all are, you could still be smart about the way that you hire? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, and you can rest easy knowing that your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best matches possible. Let the algorithms work for you and the way that they work so well for so many other things. This is like the Facebook news silo, only good because you're seeing the candidates that you want to see and more candidates like them. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post a job to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Post a job for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. And now we have a, like I said, um, one of the more sensitive and problematic questions we've ever gotten on the show. It has to do with sexual assault, um, sex without consent. And if that is something that you do not want to hear about right now, uh, don't listen. And also, if that is something that you feel like you do want to talk about right now, there are resources for you. Uh, you can call the RAIN hotline, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network hotline, 24 hours a day. That is 800-656-4673. And if you have a more general problem, uh, you have been trouble dealing with the news right now, you can also contact the crisis text line, 741741. If you're on the fence about whether or not you want to hear a conversation that has to do with dealing with sexual harassment and sexual assault, I will say that as odd as this sounds, the conversation is not completely dark and, in fact, um, has some moments that at least Helen and I found humorous. And if that sounds strange, then you haven't been paying attention to the news because that existence of the darkest of the dark and needing to laugh has been the storyline America has been using um, for the past, I don't know, year and a half, maybe longer. So, Helen, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here. I am going to read um, the uh, bio that was provided by Ben Shapiro for you. <laughs> yes, my close personal friend who loves me, Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Yes, uh, friend of the pod, Ben Shapiro. Helen Rosner, a feminist writer for The New Yorker and other publications. It's not so, inaccurate. I, yeah. It's not inaccurate. I will take it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was he responding to the article that we're going to talk about in addition to answering um, a question from a reader? I, I can only hope that, that that is the reason I have I have crossed his awareness of reality. Yeah, I should clarify, by the way, like I don't I'm not like a New Yorker writer. I, I have written 
a freelance piece for them. But like, you know, (laughs) I'll I'll take it. If that's going to have people know you, I always I'm going to have New York Times after my name for the rest of my life. I don't know about you. No, no, no. Now it's like Twitter bio on my tombstone when I die. Like I'm, I'm, you know, Ben Shapiro and I are are linked for life with this incredible compliment he's paid me. Okay, there's no easy way to transition to the question we have from the reader. Uh, so I'm just going to make it an awkward one. And I'm also going to say that this sh- might be something that some people don't want to listen to. Uh, it involves a description of sexual assault or uh, harassment. And I know that for me, sometimes that goes beyond the place that I'm comfortable at the moment. So let's just say that. And now let's hear the question. Hey, Anna. Seeing the post online with the hashtag MeToo this week has been quite heartrending, to say the least. But a potentially critical part is missing. The part that could speak to responsibility for the many MeToo stories. And with a lot of shame, I admit that I belong in the group of people who could truthfully tell a tale of complicity because three years ago, I believe I committed a sexual assault. In my shame, I wonder whether broad progress on this issue needs those of us who are complicit to own up to what we've done for us to be willing to face the considerable social and legal consequences that could await us. And outside of that accountability, would having the spectrum of stories by perpetrators out in the open, would that help expand our understanding about how Gendered violence is perpetrated, even by guys like me who think of themselves as allies. Would that even bring the problem into better focus? I don't know. But I'm sure I'm not the only one with this type of story that starts on a typical night with friends or on a date, but where violence creeps in, in a way that might be outside of the stereotype that we typically associate with gendered violence. I thought I knew if certain things prior to that night, flirtatious touching at a bar isn't consent to do anything more later. I knew that. And I knew that I didn't, and I knew that just because we had made out months prior didn't mean anything about her consent that night. Yet I did what I did. I don't believe I forced myself on her physically, though I realize that that doesn't actually matter from her experience. I had not premeditated finding my way into her bed, nor do I believe that on that night I had consciously plotted to take advantage of her in sobriety, but regardless of my intentions and prior understanding about consent, I made a series of choices that evening, and because of those, I hurt her. She trusted me, and I irrevocably broke that trust. I like to think that I've grown since then. I've made some changes, namely establishing clearer consent-driven boundaries for myself uh, with women that I meet now, as well as being more responsible about my alcohol consumption, which obviously affected my decision-making. However, nothing was going to redeem me for my actions. I know that no amount of personal growth of mine is worth the cost that Jane had to experience. And my deep contrition, which I tried to express after the incident, won't change that. Maybe this is just the plight I deserve, but I feel incredibly restrained by my complicity, kept from publicly supporting those who are now telling their story, including many friends that I really care about. I know that I can do small actions and they can be meaningful. Like last weekend when I pointed out the misogyny in the quote unquote game of Mary fuck kill that a buddy tried to initiate, but in a lot of other situations I'm silent. 
because I don't know how to reconcile my past actions with doing something now that could meaningfully prevent gendered violence. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's my question. Do you think encouraging perpetrators of gendered violence to be public with their tales of complicity is helpful to the cause? I realize that doing so would reopen psychological wounds for victims, and yet would having the per- perpetrator's stories, like mine, out there be for some global good? I don't know. Alternatively, if the conversation space needs to be ceded to the victims, at least for the moment, other than psychotherapy for ourselves, how do you think guys like me can meaningfully be part of advocacy and solidarity around this issue when we've personally been part of the problem? So, Helen, yeah. the reason I thought of you for help in answering this question, which is one of the most problematic ones we've ever gotten, by the way, is because you wrote a great piece uh, on Medium, 20 Things Men Can Do Right the Fuck Now to Support Women Beyond Just literally ceasing to sexually harass us. And I want to, we can talk about the list because I do think it's relevant here too. But one of the things that struck me about the list was actually your intro to it. When you talk about men wanting to find affirmation or absolution or support from women. And part of me, like this guy, I'm I'm like, he, he may be just a prince and so genuine but that was what really struck me about this letter was that coming to me and and by extension, maybe other women, too, for some kind of absolution. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, his voice here, he wants us to tell him it's OK. Right. I think that's why he is asking the question. Mm-hmm. And I understand that impulse. Like, I think I I. I feel very empathetic towards the desire to be forgiven and to be seen and to have your guilt soothed, whether it's by the person that you've hurt or by a a person or a group who stands in for that, which I think like in this case is you and me and all of women. But it still comes back to this sort of central idea of, you know, he says like there's something missing from the Me Too hashtag movement, which is which is men speaking out like there's something missing in this parade of women's voices and it is men's voices. I mean, it's it's a it's <laughs> it's a little. Yeah, <laughs> it's coming from a good place. Like, I think this is a good guy who clearly like wants to be better and is doing the work of self-reflecting, but he's performing the self-reflection. It's 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 still something that he needs a he needs a cookie for. I think you've answered, we're sort of answering his question, which is that I'm not sure that there should be a place for this I did it hashtag. That's every place. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's Twitter. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I know, open up the website. I'm a little uncomfortable with the Me Too hashtag, not because I'm uncomfortable with women speaking up, but because I feel like it. It, it sort of reinforces, and and in no way do I think that anybody participating in it is doing anything remotely bad, but I think that sort of the culture that creates it and the impact that it's had, like the entire movement of this hashtag, the floods of, of Me Too's that men are seeing when they log into Facebook and the fact that it is getting to them and affecting them, it is still this sort of passive thing. It's women saying, this has happened to me, and pushes 
this fact of victimhood into the foreground and doesn't necessarily carry with it, like, me too, but, like, you did it. It was you. Like, Mm -hmm. when I posted this on my Facebook wall, because, like, uncountable millions of other women, I, I have experienced sexual harassment or assault, like... I added an addendum to it and I said, you know, at least one of the people who is the reason I am able to put this status up is able to see this right now. Like, I'm Facebook friends with people who've done this to me. Like, it it was you who who is the reason that I can say me too. And I think that, like, in that respect, you know, our question asker, I think, is picking up on something very subtle. Like, I want to give him credit for this, right? Like, there Mm -hmm. is another side to me too. It's not like Women just sort of like have or men or, you know, people of all genders have sexual assault and harassment happen to them. Like, it's not like you're walking down the street and it suddenly like radiates out of the center of your being like, oh, my God, I have been sexually harassed. It has happened like through parthenogenesis, like a person sexually harasses you, a person sexually assaults you. And and I appreciate that the, the question asker recognizes that there is a second side to this narrative. But he's also telling his very, very wordy story in which he does very little and he gives us a lot of detail about all of the ways that this woman led him on and I don't know the intent is there the execution like 2.2 I've been thinking about this a lot because I too am a me too you know again I find it hard to believe there's a woman out there that isn't um a veteran (laughs) of this experience Maybe she's veteran rather than victim. Uh, I feel like it's it's such a part of our culture. If if you feel like you haven't experienced it, it's because you didn't notice in some way or because you aren't aware of it. Um, yeah. Because it's there almost constantly. It is in a way, I would say that in a weird way, sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual uh, assault does radiate in our culture. <laughs> like Just... You know, it just is there in this, in this constant presence or messages about that are, are constant. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what do men do, right? Uh, we, there's no way that you've known this, but I just had a conversation with Van Newkirk about white supremacy and about the value of using that term and about the value of talking about the structure that exists in America of white supremacy and how, yes, that does involve you, a white person, right? Me, mm-hmm. a white person, I should say. Uh and that if we name and shame specific supremacists and racists, that gets us away from the problem uh, that's structural. And and that's my issue sometimes, like when I look at this coverage that's happening right now, especially when I read very genuine, I'm sure, heartfelt messages from men saying, oh, this is horrible. I support women, believe women. Um, what he did was, was terrible. Um, part of me wants to be like, but did you look at yourself? Right. But did you look in the mirror? Don't look at Harvey. Look in the mirror. Because Harvey is Harvey is a distraction in many ways. I mean, he's horrible. He's a predator. And he has, through, you know, his extraordinary sense of entitlement and the incredible apparatus of money and power that has allowed him to prey on probably hundreds of women, like, his violence is very real and the echo effect of his violence is very real. But, you know, he is he is now a person that can be held up as the example of a sexual harasser, which is someone who has done it to hundreds of people and has had this entire M.O. and like this repeated thing of the hotel room. Like it. it yeah, I, I think you're, you and, and Van are totally right. Like it 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 distracts from the more pervasive 
quotidian, tiny acts of belittlement and violence and suffering that are inflicted onto women and non-binary people and also onto men all the time. I mean, we have a word for it, right? Like, we the word is patriarchy. The problem is that, yeah. like, <laughs> it has been... It has been over yeah. the decades, like, co-opted. Well, like white supremacy. Right, we, right. I, I mean, mean, we really it, should be using patriarchy to talk about this more than even rape culture. Right, right? yeah. I mean, because it, it is patriarchy. I mean, it's the male gaze. I mean, these are incredibly useful concepts. Um, you know, the the actual terms themselves, patriarchy and male gaze and, and all of their cohort have been twisted and co-opted and have been like flung back against activists by the right and have been misinterpreted by the left. I mean, they're all over the map, but at their core, the things that they describe are not opinions. Like they describe actual things that exist in the world and the sort of invisible threads that help and hinder human action. And it's, you know, I don't know. I always sort of feel like, why would you not want to know how the world actually works? Like when people deny that that feminism is necessary or people deny that the wage gap exists or people deny that racism is still present in the world. Like, don't you want to know like how the world actually works? Like, even if you're OK with it, like be fluent in how to <laughs> in how the strings are connected to things, like become a puppet master. I don't know. Maybe puppet master is wrong analogy. But yeah, I mean, it's it's totally present. And then Harvey, I've gone on such a tangent. <laughs> like, you know, Harvey shows up and is like, no, it's not a tangent, though. It's not. I, I promise you it's not a tangent. And I, I actually was going to say I want to bring this. It's another metaphor that people who heard the first part of this show will know. But um, I think it's useful here, which is that. The way we talk about Harvey is a, very similar to the way we talk about like a mass shooting mm-hmm. and, the, and very problematic in the same way, too, which is it takes this one horrific example, this terrible example, this tragedy, um, and it makes it tries to both legislate and create moral um, guidelines around that outlier event rather than, let's say, in the ter- terms of gun violence, the de- daily suicides that happen by gun. Yeah. Right. The daily inner city violence that happens by gun, which or, is what we really need to legislate around. Or even just sort of like passive expressions of power and weakness that happen when you think about buying a gun or when you know you're in a home with a gun that you don't have access to or you do have access to. I mean, there are subtle ways that all of these instruments of power have ripple effects on the lives of everybody connected to them. And Right. And so when we talk about Harvey, what we're sometimes ignoring is, again, sort of that daily interplay of power that is happening maybe right next to you um, in the office right now, you know, it's something that's happening right now. And it's, it's related to the big horrific event, you know, the thing that where everyone's talking about in that it helps make that possible. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is also the thing we need to really talk about, not the big showy splashy thing, but the more quotidian less easy to other um, behavior. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't wait until Godzilla has stomped half of your city flat until you decide that you want to do like structural reinforcement of all the foundations of your skyscrapers. You know, like Harvey Weinstein (laughs) is this giant metastasized ball of disgusting nightmares. But and I guess it's useful, right? Like it's great to suddenly have something that is so big it cannot be ignored. But then you get to that exhausted rage that I think so many women are feeling right now and so many people of color are feeling whenever we have conversations about race or so many people who have been affected by gun violence feel 
when there's another mass shooting, which is like, I have been telling you, I've been telling you every single freaking day that this is going to happen, that this is happening right now. Like, why did it take someone whose predatory, manipulative, violent instincts are so bright that they blot out the sun for you to finally pay attention? I can fold more in here, too. I mean, this is just the way America works right now, which is Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. Like, that is a climate disaster that's big and splashy and showy, and we're all raising money and we're all giving money and, like, not all maybe, but, you know, people are and everyone's paying attention, but there was a slow-motion disaster happening in Puerto Rico that made this larger, splashier disaster possible. Yeah. And we weren't paying attention then. I think now I want to say here's some good news, which is actually the piece that, you know, I started talking about at the top of this segment, which is what you wrote about what people can do right now, which also is, I think, again, the thing that made you and Ben Shapiro Twitter buddies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they've they've loved me for that. It's weird. You know, I, I um, I'm not exactly a stranger to the sort of Twitter vitriol of the far right, but um, I've never had it quite this bad. And it seems a little surprising to me that it's for this, because I actually think that this list of 20 things is pretty tame. I'm not saying, you know, like, give all your money to women, like, go out and castrate yourself and bow down as eunuchs <laughs> before the great feminine goddess. You're not, you're not like, declaring a war on men. Um, uh, I actually think that's what probably bothers them, is that it is about everyday actions, and it is calling into question their um, sincerity in whatever claims they make about supporting women, uh, which is easy to do, right? It's easy to say you support women. It's easy to say you believe women. Um, It's easy to call yourself a feminist. It is much, much harder to do the work of dismantling patriarchy, uh, which is basically what your 20 recommendations have to do with. Like, you never say that, but well, you know, it, but but the thing is, it's it's not actually that much harder, right? Like, I think, I mean, it is it is harder in a, oh, in, a right. in like a relative sense. But I think one of the points that I wanted to make with this list, which you know, I didn't like sit down and strategize the construction of this. It it was a pretty organic response <laughs> to a, a friend of mine, as I mentioned in the intro to the, to the list, who a, a man who was asking like, what can he do besides like just right. literally not sexually harass people. Um, they're they're actually all pretty simple. I mean, some of them might involve kind of changing your thinking, but they're not actually super hard. I don't actually mean to say like they're super hard. What I maybe when I say they're harder, I think, you know, the changing your thinking part yeah. is the the place where most of America gets stuck. I guess that's true. You know, so it's it, it's funny. I don't know how much you want to like go like item by item down the list, but there are a couple in the in the couple of days since I published this that have been sort of particular flashpoints um, and have been ones that have had sort of particularly interesting conversations grow up around them. Um, and they have been the ones like, for example, one of the items on the list is um, if you find yourself in a group of all men, ask yourself why that's the case. And force an honest answer out of yourself. Um, and a, a lot of And people, then ask out loud why. I'm looking at the, I'm, I actually yes. highlighted that one. I agree. <laughs> That's a really interesting one. And then, yeah. So step two is like also ask the question out loud. Um, but there's, there's a big thing that's missing from that. And that I think a lot of people are reading into it that isn't there, which is 
change it in the future. Um, and I intentionally left that out. Like, I'm not saying that every single space has to always have women. And if if it doesn't, you're doing it totally wrong. What I'm asking the men who are interested in reading this list to do is to just think about it. Like, and not even think about it with an implied answer that this space should definitely have women in it. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before about, like, why would you not want to see the strings? Like, there are some circumstances where I think a group of all men makes perfect sense or could even be a bonus. You know, if you're in a, a church group that's a gathering of husbands and you're talking about what it means to be a husband, like, it probably makes a lot of sense for that group to be composed entirely of husbands. And also, we want men to be talking to each other about gender even when women aren't around, right? Yeah. Like, that's the other part of this. Absolutely. Is that I, like, when this guy, our letter writer, um, wrote to us, part of me wanted him, like, part of the answer to him is also talk to your guy friends about this. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Have, they open up to each other. You guys have a conversation about the kinds of um, gray area, let's be generous, um, you know, events you might have had. Talk to each other. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I think talk to each other. I mean, this is another one of the steps, right, is like when you need to reach out to someone for emotional support, don't just immediately think of reaching out to women. But I think that like what I want kind of in my perfect dream world that I'm, you know, building out of sand in this Medium article is, um, you know, maybe it is just like you and four of your bros watching football on Thursday, Thursday night football is that the night I'm I'm there is a there is a thir- it has very low ratings cool. I'm yes, now being like Thursday a stereotypical feminist football. who doesn't understand football but like you <laughs> know I'm a huge football fan so actually <laughs> but made so the, I you think made like, the right yeah it's it's totally okay if it's a just men together watching football what I'm saying is ask yourself why is this group just men and come to the real answer like and maybe the real answer is in our group of friends there aren't any women who like football and then dig deeper into that. Like, well, why aren't there any women who like football? And and you just end up in an interesting place where, like, maybe you are paying attention to the way that you are socializing your children to like one sport versus another or how you prioritize various attributes in your spouses. I mean, whatever the answer is, I'm not saying if this is your group of five men, you are making a giant mistake and you are terrible and you deserve to be destroyed. I'm saying if it's a group of five men, ask yourself why. It's like a, a thought experiment. Right. But again, I, these are thought experiments and, and there is an understandable impulse to believe that when we're asking people to do only something in their minds, that's easier than asking them to actually give money or actually give time. <laughs> but America is based on failing to do these thought experiments. Yeah. Like <laughs> that is what patriarchy is, is refusing to engage in this other way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, one of the other items on the list is consume media marketed to women. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's sort of a similar thing, right? Just like reject the things that you're being told. You know, I'm not saying consume media marketed to women because like I want you to read a list of, you know, 14 alternative menstrual products. I'm saying like, you know, read something that's a book that looks like it might be chiclet or watch a show that has three female main characters and happens to have a title that's written in pink script because you should be smarter than the stupid focus-grouped marketing machines that are telling you what to like. Parachute Sheets has been a sponsor of this show for a while, and I have gotten some samples from them to use. But here is the God's honest truth. I have bought more parachute sheets. Uh, I have spent real money, my own money, that I did not have to spend on parachute sheets because my husband and I both 
Love them. And he's super, super picky. I'm picky too, but he's very picky and weird about sheets. So finding something with it we agree on has been great. Uh, we like the linen sheets, um, also the sateen sheets. I think I've said before, I like the linen ones because then it can be kind of uh, rumpled looking and it's supposed to be rumpled looking. And at the same time, uh, parachute sheets also are tailored to your bedclothes and your pillows so that it has a kind of cool, you know, upscale hotel look, um, even though it's linen and kind of rumpled. They also now make towels, which are great. Uh, the bath sheets that we have are big enough uh, for me to be in, like an actual sheet. I can it completely uh, wraps around me um, and is fabulous, especially as these days are growing kind of cold. And Parachute, by the way, partners with the United Nations Foundation to donate malaria prevention bed nets. And as if that weren't enough, um, they also donate all the returns that they may have to Habitat for Humanity, though I'm telling you, you probably will not return it if you have something from Parachute, unless it's like a color issue of some kind. But the colors are also really cool. They're very like um, muted and classic. And uh, very, again, like it has this like vibe of like upscaleness. Um but for not as much as you're going to pay on other websites um, for more traditional retailers. Visit parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. I confess I did that for myself when I last bought pillowcases. I used my own promotional URL. Who would ever have thunk that that would be a thing that I can do? Parachute offers a 60-night trial. So if you don't love it, just send it back. No questions asked. That's parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. Parachutehome.com slash friends. There's a lot of really good things on here. Now, we will put a link to uh, the piece in the show notes. I also really like talk less in all spaces at all times at lower volume. <laughs> That's that is a concrete one. It's a concrete <laughs> one. It's a good one. And, you know, again, I feel like I, um, I'm I'm we, we've like managed to sort of select a few that all have a common theme, but it's in all spaces, right? It's not just in mm-hmm. rooms when women are present. Like, I think what I'm hoping would happen if if a, a sort of open-minded man is reading the list and decides to take that to heart is like, talk less in spaces where it's other men too. Just like practice listening, practice being the person who doesn't have the spotlight on you. Practice n- not believing that what you have to say is automatically worth saying. Yeah. There's something on here that is of immediate interest to me too, and maybe it's an obvious one, but uh, be pro-choice and be vocal in your support of reproductive rights uh, and generous. Uh, you suggest the actual giving of money, but also understand that the opposite of reproductive choice is for- forced childbearing. I would love to see this Trump administration move to force undocumented immigrants to give birth to get as much attention as Harvey Weinstein. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. I mean, I think this I can't take credit for the for for this, I, I think, incredibly brilliant rephrasing of of the movement that has called itself pro-life. Um, but I think it's it's incredibly powerful, this idea that the opposite of reproductive freedom is forced childbearing. I mean, that's such a dystopian and terrible phrase, and it makes it incredibly immediate. And, you know, reproductive freedom doesn't just mean abortion, right? It also means birth control right. and sex ed and family planning. And it can extend to include things like childcare and parental leave. It's the entire construction that we have, like the continuum from puberty to death, basically, of like 
being a sexual person and being a parent and a grandparent and a, a caregiver or a sperm donor or an egg donor or whatever it is, like the entire reproductive cycle is not just about abortion. And if you limit really any component of it, you're taking away the choice of people to bear children or not bear them as they desire it. It's horrible. And I will point out this is actually happening in real time right now. And it isn't getting as much attention as, I don't know, I guess for some reason I would think that something that is literally out of The Handmaiden's Tale would have caught America's imagination more. But Well, I mean, America has such a fucked up relationship to the idea of pregnancy and motherhood. I mean, not just in America, the entire world. But I think um, it's very hard for us to think of the notion of pregnancy and child having as bad. I think there are such recurring cultural tropes and real life experiences of people who have unwanted pregnancies but nevertheless love their child. And in a in a sort of retconning kind of way, the genuine love that a mother would have for her child makes the unwanted pregnancy, quote unquote, worth it. Um, mm. And it's a it's a very difficult conversation to have in any context to say, like, the fact of this pregnancy was bad. The fact that this pregnancy happened or continued or came to completion is bad without extending that to say, and this child that resulted from it is also bad. Like, that's that's not the conversation. And it is an extraordinarily nuanced rhetorical distinction that I think for something that like this that for so many people really just hits them in the gut can can be almost impossible. This is happening right now, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but people should be alarmed. Um, it, we don't have to wait for President Pence to get to Handmaid's, or Handmaid's Tale America. It, it is happening right now. It is happening. It's been happening. It, I mean, it's worse now than it has ever been, but it has been happening for decades or centuries yeah. or thousands of years. I don't know. Women have never really been people. <laughs> this is an amazing list, um, and I would say... It is somewhat a gendered thing to want to end on an upbeat note. Um, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, there is something on your list that I think is guaranteed fun for people, um, which is the jerk off part. So <laughs> yeah. let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think this is point 16, right? This one I remember because people keep calling it out. Um, your original point was jerk off without porn for a while, but you did update that. Please explain. Yes, I updated it. Um, the, the succinct new version is pay for your porn. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was putting this list together, and I should sort of step back and clarify that um, this list very specifically is not about anything related to sexual harassment or sexual assault. There are lots and lots of really good, very granular lists of how not to be a predator or not to be a creep mm-hmm. or not to even like approach the line that have been circulating in the last week or two. Um And I wanted to make a list that specifically had nothing to do with that for people who kind of were like, okay, like at this very moment, I am not putting my hand on a woman's ass without consent. But what can I be doing affirmatively beyond that? So I was trying to think about all facets of a person's life. Like, what can you do in the office? What can you do at home? What can you do when you're talking on the phone to people? Blah, 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 blah. blah. And obviously, this extends to your sex life. Um, And I think that... Masturbation is healthy. Everybody does it. Jerk off as much as you need to. But porn consumption and particularly free porn consumption 
is, I think, a really important feminist issue. And it's it's uh, probably not something that a lot of people think about. I would imagine that, like, if you're in the moment to kind of pull out your iPhone and go into private mode and search, like, big tits on Google or whatever you're looking for, like, you're not thinking, how can I do this as ethically as possible? <laughs> But, you but people have become used to doing that for groceries and clothes. Yeah. So so why not? Why not? You know, your naked person of choice. But um, but yeah, no, I think um, you know the some of it is is sort of about sexualizing female bodies, and you know when you see when you have kind of like on demand sexy women who are you know fucking for your delight on your iPhone, it it I think reinforces a lot of ideas about women as commodities and objects and the sort of sexualization of women as a, as a commercial product or or just like an object in your life and in your home that you can pull up on your phone the same way you'd like play a game or something. Um, but more importantly, I just kind of, I think paying for your porn is actually correct. And I'm incredibly grateful to a couple of people who pointed out to me that that was what I meant um, and who understood who gave me the, the credit of saying, hey, I think you meant this better thing. Um, there's a lot of really amazing porn that's being made by women and by queer people and by people of color and also by straight white dudes that's being made ethically, non-coercively. The performers and the crew are being paid well, are having a really good time and are creating pornography that like they like making and that consumers will also like consuming. Um you know, like all of the other things on the list, it, the, the goal of this really was sort of stop and think about what you're doing. Just like don't necessarily stop forever what you're doing. Just make sure you're being thoughtful about it. And and I, I don't know. I think that I don't think there's any reason why we can't consume really, really good porn that's, you know, made in ways that don't hurt people. Again. I have come to a place in my life where I don't like consuming meat that I know has come from uh, an animal that has suffered. So <laughs> the analogy is very good. I mean, like, yes, I mean, no, it's it's totally true. You know, like I, I, it's um, I think this is the kind of thing that like I, I can see the, you know, the the Glenn Beck headline for something like this already. But but it's totally true. I think that there the the global pornography industry is is sordid and terrible. I think that if if the Harvey Weinstein allegations are breaking your heart the way that they have for so many people, um, learning about the realities of porn, and particularly outside of the United States, which is where a lot of the, the free porn you get on the internet mm-hmm. comes from, um, it's terrible. Like, sex work is great, but coerced and trafficked sex work is is unspeakably bad. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, if you want to be... Um, a moral person in the world, if you want to be a thoughtful consumer of all kinds of culture and all kinds of commerce, and you want to be a supporter of women, being a consumer of ethical porn is one of the best and most fun ways to do it. Hey, free idea for whoever wants to, you know, become perhaps the show's next sponsor, which would be like, you know, home delivery, ethically produced porn. Yeah. Just an idea. Like, you know, Blue Apron, but for porn. Blue Apron, but for ethical could, think, porn. You get a box every yeah. week. It's perfect. With like, I, I I think it could work. I really do. <laughs> and and on that happy note, I think we can draw our conversation to the close. Helen, thank you so much. Oh, thank um, you. I really appreciate you calling in. And also, I really appreciate you making this list. Um, I'm I'm sure we'll have your back. Yeah. 
We'll have your back, actually. You know what? We will have your back, but I'd also like to have you back. Oh, thanks. I've got your back, too. Thanks for having me on your awesome podcast. I love it. And that is it for the show. Please uh, look at uh, both Van's piece and Helen's piece. And if you are an entrepreneur, I would encourage you to steal Helena's idea um, about the curated, ethically produced porn subscription box. Um, it could have a do-it-yourself aspect to it. Um, feel free to write me with your ideas. Um, the show does have an email address. It's with friendslikepod at gmail. Uh, you can also follow the show at crooked underscore friends. And if you made it this far, you're a super fan. And I have to ask you, please rate and review the show on iTunes. We depend on those ratings and reviews to catch the eye of people who may be unfamiliar with the show. Also, uh, I am currently the lesser of the Crooked Media Podcast, and it's giving me a little bit of um, an identity crisis. So let's let's just try and do some more downloads, guys. I hope you're doing better this week. I am. And I hope you're doing even better next week because we'll be back to talk about it. Bye. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 